From Sacramento, the Bishop's Radio Hour with Bob Dunning, focusing on today's issues in the context of gospel values. Now, here's Bob Dunning on Relevant Radio. That's me. Welcome to you on this beautiful day the Lord has made. Appreciate you all being with us. I hope you I hope you like rain. Um, we certainly, uh, they keep telling us we still need it, so uh, we'll, we'll take it. We've been praying for rain, and now we got it. Well, this is indeed the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, and we are just pleased uh, and glad to welcome in Monsignor James Murphy, who among other things, has come out with a beautiful and stunning and really moving new book. Uh, Monsignor, good day to you. Uh, yes, Bob, how are you? Nice to talk. It's, it's, I'm just fine. It's a, it's a thrill to talk with you, and I've been uh, reading this wonderful volume. I think you forewarned me that you were going to write a book about Eddie. And Yes, yes. Um, you know, it all kind of happened uh, by accident. Um, back at my anniversary of ordination, a cousin of mine gave me a book um, of spiritual thoughts, and in there there was a chapter on Effie Hilson, which uh, quoted from her diary. She has a famous diary, Effie Hilson does, that she wrote that's, that actually was 40 years collecting dust in an attic. It just didn't get published right away like Anne Frank did. Remember Anne Frank? Yes, very she much. Was, of course, very much younger, of course, she was a teenager. Effie was 29 when she was killed. It's a much deeper book, um, diary, but I do believe that it's one of the most significant spiritual documents to come out of World War II. Wow. Uh, yep. uh, she's not well known in this country. No, she's not well really, known. Actually, yes, a bit better known in Europe, but for years she wasn't well known at all because the the diary was, you know, she used a kind of a, a stream of consciousness style, mm-hmm. and she jumps from subject to subject. She was an absolutely voracious reader who loved Russian literature, loved Dostoevsky's novel that Brothers Karamazov, Tolstoy, and so on, and she pulls all that into her diary. So it was it was more difficult to publish in a, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a readable format, and they did eventually put out a, a short version of her diary and then the full text. But at this point, it's available in, oh gosh, about 60 languages. And every, uh, they, they have had three conferences in Europe now over the years. Two, I think, in the Netherlands, one in Belgium, by scholars who are interested in her, who have been studying her. And each time, they put a volume out giving all the speeches that were given at those conferences. These are conferences for international scholars. Each time, there was a volume. But there are three volumes in all. Each volume has all the texts of the speeches given at that conference, and I use that quite a bit. It's a really tremendous source of information on her. Yes, and, and one of the great books that uh, she quotes frequently is the great book, uh, the Bible. Yes, she was very interested. That well, she you know she grew up. She was very very troubled in her childhood, uh, you know, had an unhappy childhood, and you know she was given to depression and a lot of chaos, emotional chaos. She got therapy from an unusual character, Julia Spear, uh, who, um, you know, brought order to her interior chaos. But in the process, also, he was Jewish, of course, like her, also was interested in the New Testament. He was interested in um, St. Augustine, St. Paul's letters. So he introduced her to to Christianity, really, mm-hmm. although neither of them ever became Christian. This is not a conversion story. No, it's not. It's a story. It's a conversion story about a person who 
suffered from depression and, and emotional chaos, but then grew to be a tremendously um, a mature, balanced person who refused to, to, to fall into the trap of hate, hatred of the Jews. He, she just refused to do it, despite what they were doing to her people and despite the appalling things that were happening around her. And she was Dutch, is that right? Yes, uh, Amsterdam is where, where she went to school. So, as as you point out, you you are approaching it from a Catholic perspective because yes. well, that is your perspective, yes. but it's That's not the only perspective I've got. Yeah, and it's not it's not that you're trying to uh, convert her posthumously or make her one of our own, but you are just pointing out the things that resonate with us as Catholics. Yes. Um... And um, see, we Catholics, you know, what we see in this is the work of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. whether or not Essie was aware of it or not. Now, Essie could have been aware of it. She, she did read a lot of Catholic literature. She was big on uh, Meister Eckhart, big on St. Augustine. Um, but whether or not she was aware of the Holy Spirit working within her, that's how we see it. This is a, a remarkable story of a person who... Uh, died for her people, basically, mm-hmm. and refused to hate the people who were destroying her, her people. So, how you know, you, you mentioned the chaos in her early life and, and yeah. all that was going around her at that time. Uh, oh, my goodness. I mean, none of us have experienced World War II like they experienced World War II in Europe and, and then being Jewish besides and what they experienced. Um, right. How did how did she have the wherewithal to be so immersed in the you know in the great the great books? Well, she just was drawn to she she was curious. She was a tremendous reader, constantly reading. But she 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 was searching for meaning in her life, searching for meaning. And then she you know she began to realize that she was too intellectual. She was intellectualizing everything, mm-hmm. and she began to realize that that she had to just quiet down, be comfortable with silence, and listen to her interior voice. She was just a very reflective person and a very spiritual person. Uh, but the things she would say were incredible. Like one day she's, out, she's taking an afternoon walk, and they have all these signs up that harass the Jews, and so on. Jews not allowed, and the place she was usually to like to walk in the park was no longer allowed. It was now they were barred from even taking a walk in the park. And she says, when she says there were signs all over the place, she says, barring us, and, but she said the few paths still left to us. She said mm-hmm. the sky above is still as it always was. Wow. She said the sky within me is just as beautiful as the one above my head. She was just so, she was just so positive and had this interior joy. Like one day she's, she's walking, taking a walk in, uh, in the camp. She's in the concentration camp, Westerport, and she takes a walk at night by the by the, the barbed wire. She says, sometimes when I stand in some corner of the camp, my eyes turn towards your heaven. Tears sometimes run down my face. Tears of deep emotion and gratitude. And then she looks up, and instead of seeing the, the menacing towers with SS men atop each tower with machine guns, she looks up, and she sees a full moon. And she Mm. says, my God, how beautiful is that moon? She said, it's full of silver and eternity. And she says, it is in these moments that my trust for knowledge and understanding comes to rest, and that a small piece of eternity 
the sails are new with a sweeping wing beat. <sighs> That's what you saw instead of seeing the, those, those towers and those, you know, the, the electrified wire and all the stuff around it. I, I, it's, it's, you know, it's unimaginable what went on in the, in the concentration well, camps, Auschwitz. death camps. Especially and, Auschwitz. Yep. Yeah, and she ended up at Auschwitz. But, but yep. the, one of the, the quotes from Westerbork where she said, those two months behind barbed wire have been the two richest and most intense yes. months of my <laughs> life in which my highest values were so deeply confirmed. I have learned to love Westerbork. I, that's just mind-boggling. How, do you, how on earth do you understand that? It's just incredible. It's just incredible. You know, uh, uh, at one point some weeks ago, I was talking to a friend about this book, and he said she was psychotic. She was psychotic. <laughs> that's the one thing she was not a psychotic. I mean, you need to find a better explanation than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, uh, the Holy Spirit works for me. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you, you do. There's of course a very important um, change of tone. What happened was, in June of 1942, BBC put out a report that in the previous year, 1941, they said about 700,000 Jews were destroyed someplace in Nazi-occupied Poland. They didn't know where. They were, they were sketchy on their details, but they said there was something going on there in that land over there. There was something going on. And uh, Etty read this and began to take it seriously, and she... She's, she writes this, I have looked our destruction, our miserable end, straight in the eye, and accepted it into my life. Hmm. My love for life has not been diminished. I am not bitter or rebellious or in any way discouraged. I continue to grow from day to day, even with the likelihood of destruction staring me in the face. Can you believe that? Wow. It's, 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 it's almost superhuman. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, um, it's I mean, it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I, oh, I there's, no, there's no doubt. No doubt. I, another quote that struck me was uh, it, when she said, I think in, when during her time in Westerbork, the sky is full of birds, the purple lupins stand up so regally and peacefully. Yes. Two little old yes. women chat. I have to turn the page. Have, have to have sat down for a chat. The sun is shining on my face, and right before our eyes, mass murder. The whole thing right. is simply beyond comprehension. Right. Um, and I think probably the most interesting thing, significant thing I find about her, bear in mind she's 28 years old. She died at 29. Mm-hmm. She years old. And she wrote nothing in Auschwitz that we know about. If she did, we don't. It's not, it hasn't survived. So what we have to do in the case of Auschwitz is describe what it was like using the information that we have from other Sources. When we have, you know, um, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, there's all, there's all kinds of books out there from survivors, so you can describe what it was like. But uh, her, her grasp of death was stunning for her age. She says, through non-acceptance and through having all those fears, most people are left with just a pitiful and mutilated slice of life, which can hardly be called life at all. It sounds paradoxical. By excluding death from our life, we cannot live a full life. And by admitting death into life, we enlarge and enrich it. Now, that's exactly what Victor Frankl says in his book, And Search for Meaning, which, by the way, I read almost 60 years ago in college. I rewrote it for this, this book. It's, that's what he says, is that in the incredible suffering of a place like Auschwitz, you have to find a way to deal with it. 
and he quotes Baruch um, Spinoza, who is a Jewish philosopher, and he um, he said that when you objectify suffering and and sort of take a look at it from the outside and make it an object you're dealing with, that then it ceases to be so much suffering. It's, it's, it's easier to handle. Hmm. So she, her, her writings from Westerbork, we have those writings, and, and how is that? How is that? Well, she just kept keeping a diary. She was a, you know, just a tremendous writer and a very, very talented writer. She has, in the end, she left 10 tattered notebooks, all in longhand. My God, it was such a problem just to, just to transcribe that into typing was a big job. Uh, but she kept writing and writing and writing, and then she left them with some friends when she, when she um, you know, boarded the train for Auschwitz, and um, then they eventually saw the light of day by being published. How, how, I mean, did she have to hide these diaries? Did she? No, she gave them to friends before she actually, I think when she went to Westerbork that, that last time, she may have known, she knew sooner or later she would be, you know, uh, gobbled up in this thing. She left them to a friend of hers who then gave, gave them to an old boyfriend. Um, and then it was, uh, eventually it got, yeah, they got uh, published. It was like 40 years later, 40 years later. And and then with with Auschwitz though you say that there how long was she at, she died at Auschwitz correct she died in Auschwitz um, it's in, in Auschwitz um, you you got there it was three days journey from Amsterdam or well, from Westerbork to um, to Auschwitz in, in Poland and when you got there you got they were divided into two, two two groups one group the big group went straight to the Concentrated to the uh, gas chamber. Mm. That was all all older people and all children. Just instantly. Yeah, right. So now the whole thing was over. And then the able body, by this point, the German economy needed more workers and they needed more stuff. So they were p- p- pulling out the, the, the most able bodied of them and using them as slave labor. So she was, unfortunately, she was chosen in the slave labor units mm-hmm. uh, with a few others. That meant that you died. The slow death of starvation and abuse over three months. She mm-hmm. lasted three months. So I mean, the ones who went to the gas chamber were the lucky ones. I hate to say that, but they were. So she died of. of she died of. We, we don't know what she died of, but you can guess. She died of probably starvation, sure. abuse, uh, uh, disease, exposure. I mean, they were working in these uh, in these um, uh, construction sites with a woefully bad diet. In, in horrible, in the Polish winter, in woefully poor clothing, undernourished. Uh, like the Bataan Death March. Yes. Uh, you, yeah. we, didn't, we didn't actually kill anybody, they just died. They just died. They didn't yeah. have to. They just yeah. died. And, and I was fine with them. They had this huge, inexhaustible supply of people coming in from mm-hmm. the Nazi policies of uh, picking up Jews. Do we, do we know... And I mean, it's not it's not addressed in this book, but we, do we know when when the camps were finally camps? I shouldn't even use that word. Uh, liberated. How many people were in them uh, still alive and able to save oh, no, them? There were some. There were some. Yes. Um, I have a friend, by the way, now in Sacramento, whose father was in the first tank to to come into to uh, Dachau. Wow. Dachau, of course, was freed by the Americans. Uh, Auschwitz was freed by the Russians. Mm-hmm. But both on both sides, they were shocked by what they saw. But there were there were several uh, alive. But they tried see, to 
they had these marches. They tried to put, get some of them out of there before the, 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 the Allies came. Because they knew the, the end was coming, right? Right, and yeah. they didn't want to be exposed. And, of course, some of them now, for example, Etty's older brother was, was one of those who was put on that death march, and he didn't die on the march, but he died a few days afterwards. It was just appalling, appalling conditions. Yeah, I, I noted uh, in, in, in this and in uh, other, other readings I've done, how many people died afterward, you know, even, even after liberation. Yes. They, couldn't, they just couldn't be saved. They were too far gone. Yes, yes, yes. Um, however, it's interesting, you know, in the last part of the book, I, 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 I asked the question, what happened to the, to the pivotal players? I mean, those survivors who told us what it was like. And a number of them, you know, lived at a ripe old age, in their 80s, a number of them. And the event that we're having on Monday night in, in Good Shepherd, we have a Holocaust survivor coming to it, and she's 88 years old. Mm-hmm. And she's alive and totally wicked and wants to come and wants to speak. Amazing, at 88. Yeah, I, I, uh, my, my son, uh, last year as a junior in high school, had uh-huh. had somebody come to their class, and uh, I think uh, similar high eighties, low nineties. Um, yeah, amazing. It's it, just amazing. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm glad, Bob, that they're t- teaching it in high school. I just heard a story about a high school that took it off the curriculum. No, oh, I believe it. I won't say who it is. Uh, they, she said in class, "Well, we don't know what happened in Auschwitz. I mean, in World War II, so we're not doing it this year." Oh my goodness! <laughs> and the kids go home and tell their parents, "We don't know what happened, so we're not doing it." I mean, you know, I, I remember, and it probably wouldn't happen today. I remember when I was in junior high school, and they showed us actual films of the gas chambers. Oh, right. Oh, I mean, yes, the, the, the true films. And I, uh, you right. know. Yeah, see, see uh, Eisenhower in 45, when he began to get these reports from the troops coming in from these various sites and these concentration camps decides to go himself to see one of me. I said, I want to see this for myself, just in case some future generation tries to claim that this is propaganda mm-hmm. and it never happened. And then he ordered his people to do to do that video thing. And those video things became very important evidence in the Nuremberg trials. Yeah, I mean, I, I know from, from a very early age, after seeing those, uh, you know, uh, the the notion of Holocaust deniers. It's like how can well, it's, how, it's it's appalling to me. Appalling. Yeah. How how can that uh, possibly? Like I mentioned be? one uh, one of the the surveys that I mentioned there in the book is done by the Guardian. Uh, showed that almost two thirds of millenniums and Gen and Gen Z people, that's young people, mm-hmm. um, almost two thirds didn't know that six million people died in, in World War Two. And a quarter, almost a quarter of them, um, said that either the Holocaust was exaggerated or was a myth or they weren't sure. Wow. That's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> wow. Hey, you know, you, you, you write about the word Holocaust. Explain and, and Shoah. Yes. I mean, Shoah is much more uh, sensitive to the Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. Holocaust has, has, you know, has got a bad connotation. But the problem is, I mean, the English-speaking world... Holocaust is what we all understand and mm-hmm. know, and the, the encyclopedias of the Holocaust put out by, by experts all use Holocaust, not Shoah. Yeah, to so try to change practice, it now would, would be a mistake, I think. To change it now, yeah. yeah. Now, in other languages, perhaps, in Europe, because mm-hmm. Europe is so much closer to it than we are. Wow. So, 
just for a minute, so we, just we don't forget to do it. Let's let's talk about this this uh, event at uh, Good Shepherd on Monday night. This coming right. on this Monday night, Monday. we have an event coming up. Um, this is our first time to do this in the diocese. Every year around this time, the Jewish community celebrates what's called Holocaust Remembrance Day. Mm-hmm. It's the twenty sixth of January. It's international. And that's their way of reminding the world, let's never forget what happened during World War II, Holocaust Remembrance Day. But, you know, we Catholics just weren't aware of it. I never heard of it, to be honest with you, until a few months ago, and then I, I knew more Catholics who went. But this idea occurred to me um, to launch the book at Good Shepherd and do something around that concept. Now, it's not actually the 26th, it's a Monday, which is the 16th, but it's the same month. And we have a person coming to speak whose endorsement is in the, on the back of the book. Right. Dr. Michael Berenbaum. Mm-hmm. He is a distinguished professor of Jewish studies at American Jewish University. And he's a, a, you know, a recognized expert on the Holocaust. He's also on a commission, a governor's commission in California for um, uh, anti-Semitism. He's going to speak. And then the book, I, I have the book available as well. We'll also have Bishop Wigan there. Bishop Wigan has, um, has he's one of these people has been haunted by the Holocaust going back for 25 years when he, um, he went to Auschwitz himself and was basically traumatized by it. I remember, I, I'm, I'm guessing, uh, maybe 15 years ago, Bishop Wigand and uh, uh, Rabbi Reuben Taft got together. Correct. Um, Correct. And that, that day was interesting. See, he had invited Rabbi Taft to speak at the cathedral during Mass, which he did. And then he returned the compliment, and we should bring it over to his place. And it was actually for the for the anniversary of the foundation of the state of Israel. Mm. That's what the talk was about. But Bishop Wiggins, in the process of speaking to the congregation in the synagogue, mentioned just in passing that the previous year he had gone to Europe and gone to Auschwitz and how it impacted him, and he suddenly choked up. And just couldn't get the words out. He was wanted to ask forgiveness from the people for what the role of Catholics in this horrible thing in Europe. Mm-hmm. And he totally choked up. And then his glasses were clouded and all wet. And he tried to fumble in his pocket to get his handkerchief out, and he couldn't get it out because he had got glasses on. <laughs> and finally, Rabbi Chad comes over to him uh, to his rescue with a, a box of Kleenex. And then they looked down, and the people in the pews were reaching for their Kleenex too. Wow. Wasn't it? A dry eye in the place. And afterwards, in the reception in the hall, afterwards, apparently two Holocaust survivors who were there present in the congregation came up to him. And one of them said, I never, never, ever thought I'd hear a Catholic bishop get up and ask forgiveness um, for Catholics who were so involved in the, in the Holocaust. So it was, a, it, was, it was a powerful moment because it was so emotional, especially coming from Bishop Wiggins, who's normally very... You know, very much in control. Right, right. He's not an emotional speaker. <laughs> no. As you know. Wow. So he'll be there Monday night. We'll tell that story Monday night as well, and, and I hope he says a few words. And, yeah. and uh, Rabbi Taff is also... Um, he, uh, we thought he would come. I think he's in Southern California right now and can't get back in time. So I think as far as I know, he won't be there. But the Holocaust survivor will be, and Dr. Berenbaum will be. And you... you uh, Rabbi Taff uh, has a, a testimonial on your book as well. He does. Yeah, uh, he's he wonderful. I'm really happy with, about that. To the thousands of volumes of Holocaust literature, Monsignor James Murphy adds unique portrait of Eddie Hillisom, a brilliant, talented, truly remarkable woman who lived by the verse from Leviticus. 
you shall not have your have hate you shall not hate your brother in your heart Hillisum's many gifts included a desire to spread love never allowing your inner heart and soul to hate not even those responsible for the extermination of millions Murphy's book is an important read especially in our turbulent times of division and hate uh, you know I, I think if I, I think if one political party in our country uh, yes. said it's Monday the other other party would immediately uh, vote that it was Tuesday you know so I just one more quote on that direct subject. When people would say to her, they wanted to have all the Germans killed immediately, kill them, kill them, they're doing such things, she would say, each of us must turn inside and destroy in himself all that he thinks he ought to destroy in others. And remember that every atom of hate we add to this world makes it more inhospitable. That's it, the Hilson. Wow. It's just, it's... Um uh, I, I'm just I am blown away by by I have not read her diary um, and I will have to get a copy of it there's an abbreviated version of it it's quite popular because the big one the full version is like 800 pages that, that includes annotations it's actually quite um, difficult to read in a sense you have to be really motivated but the um, the abbreviated version is actually very popular yeah still, still uh, sounds very well it's it's uh, so. Uh, what was what was the hardest part about writing this book, and, and how long did it take you? Okay. Um, well, I, I just <clears throat> can I just say this? <clears throat> I think that to do a book like this, you have to have a passion for the subject. You just have to have a passion for the subject. I ended up living with her literally day and night for two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more I read, the more I was just bored over by it. Um, I, 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 it wasn't difficult. It was very inspiring. Um, and I was very, I have to say, very involved in the sense of the passion was there. I wanted to tell the world what the Nazis did to this wonderful, beautiful girl. And also, by the way, Edith Stein. You know, I have a chapter on Edith Stein as well, mm-hmm. who ended up in ISIS, as you know. Uh, she, was, she became a Catholic nun. Right. Uh, and I contrast the two. The two are very similar in many ways, but of course they're different in the sense that Edith Stein was a famous philosopher, and she had all kinds of books she published before she died, so hers got published right away, uh, so she was very different, but they, they both died for their people, right. and they both were searched search for truth, and they both had to stop intellectualizing and allow themselves to be comfortable with silence and listen to the inner voice. Listen to the voice within them. God is within us. Effie said, she said, uh, and Pope Benedict quoted this, she said, deep down inside it is a well, and God is in that well. Hmm. But but she said, very often, the well is blocked by all kinds of stones and debris. You have to dig down to get in there and to find him. Talking about God inside herself. Well, you know, she didn't uh, uh, blame God for any of this. No. And, and in that, by the way, in that case, she's very much influenced by by uh, Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov. In The Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky, who's a profound Christian writer, of course, as you know, um, you know, he sets up uh, one of the Karamazov brothers who blames God for everything, and he says, God who allows suffering, he allows mm-hmm. the suffering of innocent children. I don't want to go to heaven to that God. If that's the kind of God he is, I don't want it. I, I, I hereby give away my ticket. 
And mm-hmm. she takes that on directly and says, stop blaming God for the evil in the world. It's us. It's us that are, that are doing this, not God. She was quite clear about that. I don't, I don't know how, you know, I've, I've said many times that the hardest thing Jesus asked us to do was to love your enemy. And uh, not that it was wrong. I mean, not that, it, you know, you, you, you realize if you do love your enemy, we'd, we'd, it would be a better world. But it's just yes. really hard for us to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very, very, very uh, it's, hard. It's hard to just love, yeah. love people that you're indifferent about, no less your right. enemy. Um, that's why she's so unique. Um, you know, and, and I mean, we don't in, in this conversation mean to condemn the Jews who, who were so furious about what happened. That's what all of us would be. Right. Um, you know, that, what well, you name? mentioned that in your, in your book. You, you, right. You know. Ruben, uh, Rubenstein, who's a, a Jewish theologian, American, says God died in Auschwitz. Hmm. God died there. He said, and, and he suddenly, he, he began to realize, he says, Creation is a big machine. You're just a part of a machine. And he said, omnipotent nothingness is the Lord of creation. Nothingness will be capital N. Omnipotent nothingness wow. is the Lord of creation. Now, that's a scary statement. It really is. I would, that would scare me to, have, to reach that conclusion. Yeah. But it's easy for me to talk. I didn't go through Auschwitz. No, yeah, you know, it's it's. Uh, I can I can look back at my life, and if, uh, if I died this second and... Uh, Saint Peter or or the good Lord Himself said, uh, "How was it?" I I wouldn't be able to uh, point to any complaint, you know. Like no. I I didn't make the All Star team when I was in the Little League, you know. <laughs> that's that's about as bad as it got. Oh, yeah. Gosh, it's funny. Um, so you know, I hope that uh, people come on Monday. It's at six thirty on Monday evening at Good Shepherd Parish in Oak Grove. I think it will be a good event. Um, Dr. Berenbaum is an expert on the Holocaust. Uh, Dick Urgent says, tell us about the Holocaust. Many Catholics don't know enough about it. And the more shocking it is, the better. Yeah, yeah. Well, and again, it's a, it's a good shepherd in uh, uh, Father Philip Wells Hall. And uh, yeah. um, hopefully uh, there will be copies of your book there. Yes, there will be. The Catholic store on Broadway is mm-hmm. coming, and they will have books available. And I will sign books there as well. Uh, at the end of the event, I will sign books. Um, I think Bishop Sofia is coming as well. He's, he's actually getting back from... From the Philippines, yeah. Right, and, but he's, he's, apparently his flight was uh, was cancelled, so his flight now is on Sunday. But he will still be back by Sunday night. This is on Monday night, so... Boy, with yeah. all the cancel between uh, weather and the glitches I, and... Oh, uh, you know, it's, 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 scary time to, to, to travel. I was going to say, it's hard to get from Sacramento to Los Angeles, no no <laughs> less from Manila to San Francisco. <laughs> I know. I know. Gosh. Wow. So, so you you have a, you have another book uh, on the Cristeros. I do. Uh, no, I, I have a book on... Uh, oh, go ahead, yes. I, oh, on the Cristero uh, War. That's, that's, yeah, that's the first one. And yep. we've, we've talked about it, but uh, tell, us, tell us about the other one. I have one on Dorothy Day. Oh, sure, uh, right, yeah, and we talked about that, yeah. That we talked about. Now, that one um, is going to be published um, by Veritas Press in Dublin. It's, mm. the, it's the publishing arm of the Irish bishops, actually. Uh, I just thought that, you know, she's so well-known here right. to get her into a market that doesn't know her, and the Irish church could do with a little inspiration. Yeah, right oh, now, yes. you know, she's an inspiring person, so 
I'm working on that, but they, they probably will look around for giving the publishing rights to an American company as well. They'd like to co-publish with an American company, so they're, mm-hmm. they're working on that. But it will at least it'll be published by a Veritas Press above it sometime this year. Sometime this year. And, and that looks complete, right? Well, it is complete, but then I, I had some people in Ireland read it, and they gave me some very interesting advice about making it relevant to the Irish mm-hmm. um, the Irish uh, readership. So I'm making um, some adjustments. So, but Dorothy Day was an American, right? She was an American. She did, was, uh, but did she have did she have Irish heritage? Not particularly. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Um, um, she was, of course, a convert to Catholicism, right. a radical communist, and she remained radical all her life. Uh, and there was a tremendous um, voice for social justice. And um, but the the, 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 the the argument I make in that book is that. Underneath all of Dorothy Day's activism, constant activism, was a search for meaning. Right. A search for meaning in life. What's the meaning? Why are we here? Why did God put us here? And why is joy so fleeting? The fleeting nature of joy. And um, it was that, that search. And again, by the way, just like Eddie Hinson, she was a voracious reader, and she loved Russian literature. She mm-hmm. loved Dostoevsky also. Mm-hmm. And... Um, in one of the chapters, she says, all my life I have been tortured by God. And that statement, she took it directly out of Dostoevsky's novel, The, the Possessed. That's what, that's what Dostoevsky's character said in the novel. Right, right. All, my, all my life I've been, I've been tortured by God. <laughs> I, rem- I remember years ago, uh, uh, as a newspaper columnist uh, for the Davis uh-huh. Enterprise, uh, which I still am, but uh, yeah. uh, I wrote a column about... Uh, if you could invite 10 people, any people, living, dead, his, from history, right. from whatever, uh, to right. dinner, who would you invite? And I, and I listed my 10, and one of them was Dorothy Day. Are you kidding? Okay. And I got, this is probably, uh, probably 20 years ago, something like that, and I got oh. a call from my editor, and she said, who the heck is Dorothy Day? <laughs> And she says, don't you want to have a little explanation? Because the others were more well-known, obviously. Yes. And yes, good for you. She said, w- w- yeah. don't you want to have a little explanation as to who Dorothy Day is for your readers? And I said, right. no. Um, I want them to, to look at this and I go, wow, he put yeah. this person with all these other people that we all know about, whether I, whether yeah. it was Babe Ruth or Jesus or who it was. Right. And right. and I'd I'd this may cause them to go find out something about Dorothy Day. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. No, she's a fascinating character. Yeah. I did meet her, of course. She was in Sacramento here. Mm-hmm. She spoke at the Newman Center in 1971. Oh, wow. By then, she was, by then she was getting a little older. And I know now, looking back, that she used to get very irritable and uh, you know, impatient when she was on the road. She would get tired. She mm-hmm. just simply got tired. And that I was one of them. And I was sent by the Catholic Herald to do an interview. I was a reporter. And I asked her for the interview, and she wouldn't get him. Oh, wow. She says, you just heard my talk. Is that enough for you? <laughs> and then, then she looks me up and down, and she says, are you pleased? I said, yes. She said, that's a job for lay people. Why are you doing that job? So I backed off. I didn't get into a fight with her. <laughs> uh, but I took, oh, uh, 1971. Oh, I wish I, I, wish I had known. Um, and then, then she was down, the following year she was down in uh, Southern California, picketing the Cesar Chavez. Right. And I was there for that as well. And along with Keith, probably Keith Kenny, the two of us went down. And that day she was arrested with like 50 um, 
priests and nuns, but a couple of priests and several nuns. The nuns, right. there was a big nuns convention in San Francisco that same week, and they heard about Dorothy Day down in, in Delano or someplace, and they all threw the buses and went down and got arrested. <laughs> so they, they were in some holding facility. It wasn't the full right. deal. Right. In Southern California for about 10 days, and then they were let go. Yeah. Wow. It was our eighth time to get arrested, or eighth time to get arrested. Amazing. So... Yeah. It, Talk a little bit about about getting books published. The, the Cristeros, I believe that was Ignatius Press, right? And then um, the uh, the one on on Etsy Hilson, they um, they had the they, might, they had the first names on that, but they 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 didn't didn't uh, choose it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fit their niche. Their niche is it tends to be quite conservative for one thing. Yes, it does. Yeah. Fit, yeah, and all of these publishers have their own niches. They have their market, and they, if it fits it, fine. If it doesn't, they won't. Uh, the one on on Dorothy Day will be with an Irish publisher. We will we'll see. For them, it, for them, it's something different. It's an American person who's up for canonization. You know, it's you know an interesting story for Irish Catholics. Dorothy oh, absolutely, but, yeah. But there are, I find publishers they're all different. They're, they have their different ways of doing things, and they're different. Um, you know, tones, and but they, they they have to stick with their market. They have a niche in the market, and they have to you know satisfy that niche. And then, is there? I, I presume you get signed an editor, and uh, is there a yeah. lot of back and forth or not? There is. Oh yeah, but you never meet anybody. It's all done by email. Yep. And and back and forth. Oh yes, very much so. And by the way, mostly women. Someone told me just the other day that eighty percent of the publishing industry is run by women. I didn't know that. And all the editors I have are all women. But they're, they're wonderful. They're picky, you know, they, especially on the footnotes. I get in trouble with the footnotes. They have to, they go through those footnotes of the flying home and you have to, you know, explain where you got what the source was and name the source correctly. And, <laughs> and it takes a lot of work, actually. The footnotes take as much work as the actual text. I know uh, we frequently uh, will have a, an editor on from Ignatius Press, Vivian Dudrow, and uh-huh. and she's just she's just so wonderful to talk to. You know, she, right? Oh yeah, they're highly and they have a that's a huge publishing outfit. It's yes, and it's hugely successful and professional, really professional. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you worked with with Father Fessio, I presume, as well. I was. Yeah. 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 yeah I noticed. Um, yeah, they're, they're doing a great job. Yeah, the, the Ignatius. Uh, I mean, the, the the volume of books that they put out is, is yeah, I think enormous. it's about twenty a year, right? Yeah, it's huge. And yeah, sometimes and even but, even novels. But, but, but they have um, they've got a very good um, you know promotive marketing mm-hmm. technique. For example, on the book in Mexico that I, I published with them, they must have put me on to about ten different radio networks in the United States and Canada. Wow. They have contact with, and these were programs like yours, programs where you interview authors and mm-hmm. talk about the book. Mm-hmm. But I must have had like eight or ten of them, and, and, and some of them Canadian. That's selling books like crazy. That's really... Boy, that's word great. Well, yeah, I guess the word out there. Were you on Salt and Light in Canada? I don't remember which which was which, but I know I was on a bunch of them. Yeah. A bunch of them. And they set the whole thing up. And you, they just call you, and you do the interview on the phone from your office. It's really and easy to it's do. It's so important. I, 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 I remember reading one time that if you were on Oprah, or even if she yeah. gave you a it was like worth 100,000 books. I, I believe it. Yeah. I believe it. And I was on two programs with EWTN, again, through them. They were mm-hmm. organized with EWTN. And then EWTN apparently has its own, its own catalog. So your book is on their catalog, 
as well as Ignatius Press's catalog. Yeah, and AWTN has enormous number of uh, listeners. Well, they need to, of course. Once they, I mean, once they sign a contract with you, that's a big uh, risk for them. They need to sell books and cover their costs. Mm -hmm. They have to sell books. So do you have yeah. any other books? And uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Bob. Maybe I'm at the end. Let's see. What, you know, I'm, what I'm about gosh. Bishop Gallegos? Is there is there a book there? I don't know. Um, I suppose I don't know. Um, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. See, they, they, the order he belonged to were you know very enthusiastic about pushing that cause, but now it's it's, it's on hold. No, and I, I mean, it go any further than those. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, and, and I would think. Well, with with Eddie, of course, there's there's the diary, and but yes, you have a great source. And you have a great source. Are there a number of books on Eddie or not? There are. Um, well, not not a, a big number, um, but the. The big source is the volumes put out by those conferences in Europe, those conferences that they held in Europe with all those experts coming together. Each conference had about 15 or 20 experts. And then all those talks, the text of those talks, goes into the volume, and that's what you have when you buy the, those three of those volumes. I use those a lot. It was really, I, these were experts who had gone through her diary with more expertise than I had. And they were able to interpret and, and um, pull out themes that were very helpful in your writing. But it costs like over $100 on Amazon for the three volumes. That's why you know, ordinary people don't, would, wouldn't be interested in those volumes. It's only somebody who's, who's doing you know, an intense study of her work. Yeah, it, it, it's hard. You know, I, sometimes you, you, I remember a professor of mine in college, she, he wrote some some book on some aspect of the Civil War, and I and I always thought to myself, how did how did he, where did, did he go? Did he was there some new research that he? Do you know what I mean? Or was he just right. going back to the great authors of and 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 sort of coming up with his own conclusions? You know, I, I would think it's right. it's really difficult to write about a historical figure. Right, but you know, Big Bishop Gregus is a very humble guy. And yeah. This impact on many of us in Sacramento, so it would be nice to see the, the, the calls advance. I suppose a book on him would maybe help. Yeah. Is it is is the cause just is there not enough there at this point or? Uh... I'm not sure. See, it's sort of on hold. Um, um, so where does it go from here? You know, you have to have, a, and I know from the past, you have to have an active cult uh, of devotion to him. But I think there is a very uh, active devotion to him in, our, in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. And his remains is now, as you know, entombed in Guadalupe Church. Right. It's a constant reminder. So, I mean, uh, people who knew him here, you know, he's a, he's a saint for them and a huge sure. inspiration for them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard n nothing nothing but good things. I remember, and, and you, you were there, um, the, the most recent uh, Bishop Gagos maternity home dinner yeah, the correct. the the yeah. executive director said said that uh, she she just assumed she was I forget who she thought had had um, had uh, confirmed her and she went yeah. back and found the picture and it was Bishop uh, well, Gallegos and she Gallegos. didn't even know it. Yeah, I know. Funny, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, he was a very humble man, and of course he was. You know, he had a, a, a part of his sight, which must have been very humbling for him. Yeah, he had to blow up the, the type when he was saying mass into a big, large type. So he could read it, and um, you know he, was, he, he had his own crosses that he carried. Absolutely. Yes, for sure, for sure.
for sure. So uh, you probably know this, but it, it's interesting that, that this event on Monday is on the 16th of January. Eddie's yep. birthday is the 15th of January. Oh, is that right? Yes. Okay. Oh, birthday. Oh, yes. I, I, I wasn't paying attention to that. Okay. She was born on right. the 15th of January 15th. in 1914. Yeah. 14, right, yeah. The, the date that I'm more aware of is she died in November '43. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was born in January 43, so okay. she, she was dying as I was being born. Wow, yes, 30th of November, and as you say, age right. 29. 29 years old. I mean, it's, what wisdom. It's, it's amazing. I didn't know how to tie my shoes when I was 29. I know. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's just, a, to me, a clear example of the Holy Spirit, and, and the Holocaust was the fodder the Holy Spirit used to bring and to bring her closer to himself, God. So if, if people could take one or two or three things from this book, what would, what would you want them to take from this? That, 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 um, that suffering has meaning, mm-hmm. um, and that you, you know, it's part of life, um, and that death is part of life. You know? um, it sounds paradoxical. By excluding death from our life, we cannot live a full life. And by admitting death into life, we enlarge and enrich it. Mm. And that's, that's, uh, that's a statement, that's the theology of the cross. Sure. Without using the word cross. I mean, she's not a Christian, but she's articulating our theology of the cross very well there. Yeah. She, 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 the, the words she articulates are uh, almost right out of Jesus' mouth. Right. And then she says, about suffering, we are here to take some of the world's suffering upon ourselves by bearing our breast to it, not to increase it by our violence. Hmm. You know, in this day and age, that really says something, doesn't it? it oh, it, it really, really is. Uh, I'll quote from the, the, the back of the book from Bishop Wiegand. Uh, he yes. says, I spent a day in Auschwitz in 1997, so 25, six years ago, Reflecting on the enormity of the evil of the Holocaust, my traumatic experience there is still fresh in my memory 25 years later. Equally riveting is Monsignor James Murphy's description of Auschwitz through the eyes of a young woman who was killed there in 1943. Eddie Hillisum's journey, begun in emotional turmoil and promiscuity, ultimately reveals how God works in us, especially through suffering and injustice. Amid the horrors that surrounded her, she was transformed. And her union with God may even have been mystical. Too few knew this amazing story. You know, right. uh, is there, you know, I, I just I wonder is is there a is there a movie here? I, who knows? I mean, it'd be nice if there was. Oh uh, man! Let, let I let mean, me I think this. about that. Yeah, let me say this: uh, Bishop Wigan and I have this in common. We are both haunted by. The, the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. It came to me, it, it happened to me by reading her diary. It happened to him by going to Auschwitz. What happened was he was, he was with a group of, of pilgrims, and they went to Auschwitz as a group, and went through the usual, uh, you know, uh, tour guide and so on. Mm-hmm. Then went back to Krakow, and Bishop Wigand decides to break away from the group and go back to Auschwitz for a second day alone. Mm. So he went back on the second day alone. And, and just sat there trying to get his head around this enormous crime. It's it's uh, uh, there aren't words uh, that, that fit. Uh, we haven't invented a word. Uh, the best I can come up with is unimaginable. 
Um, and and to, to, to just the individuals and what they went through there and then to hear her story and, and for her to see the beauty and, and, and the, the love. And, you know, the, her, her statement about, uh, see if I can, I can find it, that, that another one that really stuck with me was that um, everywhere things are both very good and very bad at the same time. The two are in balance, everywhere and always. I never have the feeling that I've got to make the best of things. Everything is fine, just as it is. Every situation, however miserable, is complete in itself and contains the good as well as the bad. Right, right. I mean, what wisdom? What wisdom from a 29-year-old? And just, we've only got a couple minutes, but I was also very intrigued by the the postcard that she threw out the window of the train. My God, thank God that farmer had enough presence yes. of mind to drop that thing in the mail. Yes. He knew darn well because he had seen those trains passing. He knew darn well they were heading east with victims. Yep. He said, i got to get that to the, to, the, to the person they're supposed to go to. And then, you know, uh, that's the last thing we have written by her hand, the very last thing. And was that on the, that was on the way to Auschwitz? That was on the way to Auschwitz. Right. Wow. It was in, in northern uh, Netherlands just before they crossed the border. She threw it out the window, and she didn't know what was going to happen to it. And the farmer who picked it up said, okay, I'm going to put that in the mail. Hmm. So, um, no, it's a, it's a wonderful story. Do we, do, do, and, do, do. and poor Effie, I mean, just, just to have to survive without a notebook and a pen was for her a huge cross. Yeah. Not to be able to write. She, she used to find, you know, understand life by writing about it. Yeah. Or search for meaning came through writing. Have, have, this is probably a silly question, but have we ever canonized a non-Catholic? Well, I'm, <laughs> not sure, I'm sure we won't, but you know, I, I consider her a saint. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, a saint, I guess, by definition, is someone who's uh, in heaven. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. How could you think of being anywhere else except in heaven? Yeah. My God. Yeah. So wow, that's it. Father, it's 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 uh, always a joy to talk with you. But this this Thanks, is Bob. this is wonderful, and we will uh, again. Let's let's remind people about Monday night at uh, Good Shepherd. Uh, it starts at uh, six thirty p.m. The keynote yep. speaker will be uh, Dr. Michael Berenbaum, a distinguished professor of Jewish studies at American Jewish Jewish University, a recognized Holocaust expert. Um, and a recent appointee to the Governor's Council on the Holocaust and Genocide Education. And uh, it will be at uh, Good Shepherd, which is on Racket Court in Elk Grove. Starts at 6.30. All you have to do is uh, show up. You don't need an RSVP or anything like that. And uh, you can get a copy of this book there as well. It's, uh, it's, uh, you, you would be silly not to read this book. It is inspiring. It is, um, thank you so much for writing it and thanks so much for taking the time with us today thanks bob okay take care god bless bless you too that's a monsignor uh james murphy who is the uh author of this book and uh wow it's a it's a powerful powerful book um just uh uh michael berenbaum uh, said uh uh Ellie Hillenbaum, a beautiful, young, emancipated Jewish woman, was incarcerated at the transit camp of Westerbork and murdered 
at Auschwitz, James Murphy's Beauty and Horror in a Concentration Camp is a beautiful, as a powerful analysis of her well-respected but not widely known diary, a profoundly spiritual description of how she wrestled with God and with suffering. Murphy argues convincingly that Hillenbaum's diary, which conveys her unique ability to appreciate the majesty and vitality of life, even in the all-pervasive presence of death, is one of the most spiritually important documents to emerge from the ashes of the Holocaust. Murphy presents a most Catholic and most respectful reading of this Jewish woman's life who remained with her people to the end. So uh, that's going to do it for us for today. Thanks for listening, everyone. God bless. This portion of the Bishop's Hour is brought to you by a grant from the St. Vincent de Paul Society. Drop by and shop at the thrift store, a beautiful, beautiful thrift store at 2275 Watt Avenue. Open Mondays through Saturdays from 10 to 8 and Sundays from 11 to 6. They also accept donations at the store, donations of furniture, appliances, clothing, books, everyday household items. Your donations help to fund the many projects of the St. Vincent de Paul Society throughout the Diocese of Sacramento. Do such wonderful, wonderful work, and the thrift store is uh, one of the the ways they uh, raise the funds to help people throughout the diocese, and also uh, uh, many of their clients are able to access the uh, thrift store for uh, items that they need. You can uh, give them a call. They will come pick it up as well, but you can uh, give them a call. They're at 916-972-1212. And remember, again, the thrift store is open Uh, seven days a week at 2275 Watt Avenue right here in Sacramento. Well, Bishop Soto refers to Christ the King Retreat Center as the jewel of the diocese, and indeed it is. What a beautiful oasis it is. It's located in Citrus Heights, uh, right in the hustle and bustle of the city, and you feel like you're getting away from it all when you uh, turn off the main road and just uh, uh, come into Christ the King Passionist Retreat Center. Christ the King has served Northern California and the Diocese of Sacramento for over 60 years through parish weekend retreats, individual spiritual direction, and a variety of other programs. For information on all the programs that they offer, including residential programs, give them a call. They're at 916-725-4720, or you can visit them at 6520 Van Maren Lane in Citrus Heights. And we certainly thank uh, the St. Vincent de Paul Society and Christ the King Passionist Retreat Center for their fine and long-standing support of the Bishop's Hour. This portion of the Bishop's Hour is brought to you by a grant from the Mercy Foundation, enriching lives in the Sacramento region through Sisters of Mercy Ministries in health care, education, housing, and the care for the poor and elderly. For the Mercy Foundation, philanthropy is one of the most powerful expressions of compassion and love. Just as many people in our community need a hand, countless others are reaching out to them with comfort and hope. You can express your care and concern for the less fortunate with a gift to the Mercy Foundation. Uh, you can give them a call, 916-851-2700. That's 916-851-2700. And you can be confident that fully 100% of your contribution will support the Sisters of Ministry of Mi- Mercy Ministry or ministries that you choose. And what a wonderful treasure Easter's Catholic Books and Gifts has been for all of us here in the diocese as they uh, uh, transition uh, into uh, uh, new ownership and management. Uh, They continue to offer wonderful workshops, wonderful uh, uh, resources for the Catholic community throughout the Diocese of Sacramento. 
Not only does Easter's provide a wide array of Catholic books, both current releases and longtime classics, but they also sponsor a number of valuable workshops and lectures throughout the year. They're, they're located at 6916 Sunrise Boulevard in Citrus Heights. Give them a call, 916-338-7272. We also receive a generous underwriting support by Crumley & Associates, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services. If you have questions about retirement, Crumley & Associates can help you with their confident retirement approach that can help define a clear roadmap to get you where you want to go. You can uh, contact them, get all the details at Crumley & Associates, 7956 California Avenue in Fair Oaks. They're at 916-638-4600. That's 916-638-4600. And we uh, are, are certainly uh, appreciative of the uh, fine and uh, longstanding support of the Mercy Foundation, of Easter's Catholic Books and Gifts, and of Crumley & Associates.